Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Uh, well, welcome. My name is Terry. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today we're going to be beginning what we hope will be a long and fruitful journey through the book of Exodus. Uh, Pastor James and I are really uh, pretty stoked about it. Uh, today's going to kind of be an introduction. It's truly an amazing book of the Bible that reveals some amazing truths about God. And those truths are revealed through extreme suffering. And so uh, maybe some of us can relate uh, Exodus is a historical narrative book. It's written by the great leader and prophet Moses. It's about the chosen people of God, the Israelites escaping very difficult slavery, cruel slavery in Egypt. And so that we understand all that's going on, we're, if we just start in Exodus, we're like plopped in the middle of, of like history. So I want us to back way out and, um, and take a look because... Uh, we need context and world events. First thing I want you to know this morning is that world events are a setting for the glory of God. World events are a setting for the glory of God. So we really need to start at the beginning. And remember uh, from our studies in, as a church through Genesis and uh, John and Acts, what God's eternal plan is. God has an eternal plan, right? Uh, nothing that you see is a surprise to Him. He has a plan, and He's not making it up as He goes. It's an eternal plan. And this is God's eternal plan. It's His glory by placing people in everlasting relationship with Himself through Jesus. That's God's eternal plan. Now, in order to see this well, then, we need, again, we need to start at the beginning because the, books of, the book of Exodus is actually part of a larger uh, sort of arc of history. And God's divine plan to reconcile people to Himself. So the only real God, the one Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who's actually there, chose of His free will to create everything else that exists. Right now, I know that's a big, uh, like a word salad, but get a hold of it. The real God who's actually there, uh, the one God, Father, Son, Spirit, chose of His own free will to create everything else that exists. And that's key to understanding really anything else in life. But get a hold of that. It'll help us understand um, what we're going through here in the book of Exodus. And then as the crown of the creation, the crown of all else that God had made, this sounds weird, He made us. He made humanity. He made mankind. He made us specifically with certain attributes that are, are similar to and, and lesser than some of His attributes. And He gave us the honor of being His representatives within the creation. That's what we, we call being made in God's image, being His image bearers uh, upon the earth. And so God did this for the expressed purpose that mankind, human, all of humanity, could have a relationship with Him that's special, that's different than any other part of the, relation, of the creation can have with Him. And part of being made in the image of God is that God gave us ability to choose, specifically to accept or reject the loving relationship that He had created us to have with Him. Well, if you know your history, uh, we chose to reject Him. Now, we rebelled is the next stage in history. You may remember in our time, in the book of Genesis, mankind used our freedom to 
reject God. And that brings us all the things that naturally follow from rejecting the Creator of life and love and health and peace and all those things upon the earth and upon the rest of humanity, including us today. We call that the fall. Right? This is the results that are due to the rejection of God's blessing. We're not under God's blessing anymore. We're under God's wrath now. And this, we're facing sort of the just consequences or what is rightly uh, deserved of our rejection of the Creator. So now, you may have noticed, our relationship with God is inherently broken. And it's impossible to reconcile by our own means. That's kind of the default setting for each of us. We noticed it with our first parents in the book of Genesis. We've noticed it with all the other people that we've studied in the Bible so far. We see it in the world today as we live. And in times of honesty, we look into the mirror of, of, the, of the Bible and let it reflect on our hearts. In times of honesty, we see those fallen repercussions, that default setting that's, that's at, kind of at war with God in our own hearts, in our own actions, and even in our own motives. So, well, even though we rebelled and then and actively rebel today, God graciously chose to bring the Savior. Uh, this, is, this historic fall from grace happened in Genesis. God in His mercy promised a Savior right away called Messiah in Hebrew who would reconcile men and women to God. The world would later learn that that Savior would actually be God the Son, the second person of the one triune God I talked about adding full humanity to His divinity, and being born as a man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now in history, we learned that God had shaped the very nations to bring about at the appointed time, the Bible says, the proper time this place we, to a place we call the Advent or the birth of the Messiah. Many of us will celebrate that in a few months as Christmas. So in order for God to have uh, the Messiah God the Son born as fully a man, remaining God being born as fully a man, God had to choose a people group through whom the Messiah would be born. He's got to be fully human. He's got to come from a people group. And God did. God chose a people group through which to bring the Savior. You may remember in our study of Genesis that God chose the people group which the Messiah would be born through by first choosing a man named Abram. Right? Abram was a guy who lived uh, in an area where everybody worshipped false gods, not the real God who's actually there. But Yahweh, the real God who's actually there, called Abraham out of that false religion into true worship of the real God. And he changed Abram's name to Abraham because he would be the father of many nations, and that's what Abraham means. And so specifically, God made a covenant with Abraham that through Abraham, the Messiah, the long-promised Messiah, since way back in the book of Genesis, and even in God's plan before time began, this promised Messiah would be born through Abraham's lineage. And all nations would be blessed through him because of it. Now the book we're beginning our study in today, uh, the book of Exodus is about those people. The people through whom which God would bring the Savior. Uh, and as we progress in the book of Genesis, we learn that Abraham had sons, uh, several of them, most importantly, a man named Isaac. I say he's most important because God chose to renew the covenant that he made with Abraham. Hey, I'm, I'm sending the Messiah through you. I'm going to provide a, a land. I'm going to provide a people. I'm going to provide blessing. And inside of that, I'm going to protect those people and I'm going to bring the Messiah. Well, God renewed that with Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. 
and God chose to renew his covenant yet again about the Messiah through Isaac's son, Jacob. And God would rename Jacob like he had Abraham. He would rename Jacob Israel. That's the namesake and progenitor of the nation we're learning about in the book of Exodus and that you see in the news so much today. And the people of Israel um, are those people. Jacob, Israel, had 12 sons who uh, would be the patriarchs of the famous 12 tribes of Israel. We'll learn more about those as we go. One of those 12 sons' names was Joseph. At the end of the book of... I'm catching up in Genesis now. We're almost there to Exodus. At the end of the book of Genesis, we learn that Joseph's brothers, great heroes that they were, sold him into slavery in Egypt out of jealousy because Jacob favored Joseph. And as it would turn out, what they meant for evil, selling their brother into slavery, would, would we agree that's an evil thing? It's an evil thing to do. Okay. Uh, God actually meant for good, for, for the good of Joseph, for the good of those brothers, and for the good of the nation of Israel... Joseph was actually taking, taken into the household of Pharaoh, kind of like family, and he rose to be the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. And God warned Joseph in a dream that there were seven years of famine coming to the region, and um, so he should store up seven years' worth of provisions for the entire land of Egypt, and Joseph did it. I guess he's like the first doomsday prepper, right? That was Joseph. So I, but Joseph ended up not only being able to spare the nation of Egypt from the famine, but also bring his family, including his wicked brothers, in to be spared as well. And under Joseph, the Israelites were very prosperous in Egypt. They grew in strength and number, the Scripture tells us. And that brings us to the beginning of what is going to be an extreme and incredibly harsh time of transition for the, for the Hebrew people, for the Israelites. Now today, in our, in our lives the world finds itself in a strange and difficult time as well, does it not? The church in certain parts of the world, um, Nigeria, Syria, China, Afghanistan, finds itself, the church finds itself truly in barbaric times. And here in the United States, we find ourselves in times of disillusionment, confusion, fight, infighting with one another, disgruntlement, Weariness and, and, and even ambivalence, like, yeah, man, I, I'm so tired, I just don't care anymore. So our prayer is that as we study God's interaction with His people during this incredibly difficult time that they had in Egypt, as they transition from a time of prosperity and peace to a time of bondage and real turmoil, that we will see the love of God, that we'll see the purification of God for His people. God's provision for His people, His guidance for His people, His deliverance of His people, not just in those difficult times, but through, specifically through those difficult times. We'll see, I hope we see that God is shaping us and molding us and He is with us and is changing us via, through, because of, by way of our difficulties. And so I hope we'll know that if we're in Christ, we're the people of God. Not just like... Uh, nationally, like the Israelites were, but relationally, right? Because we've been reconciled through Jesus. God is God today as He was then. We learned that recently, right? Um, and we can look at Him during our transitions no matter how difficult. Now, let's learn what happened to the Israelites. Jerry Beck is one of our new members. And Jerry has... She's not one of the Israelites, but Jerry... <laughs> 
has in her heart a desire to know God. And one of the ways that God has manifested that in Jerry's heart is through knowing God's Word, the Bible. And we want to encourage you this morning to want to know God. We want to encourage you this morning to want to know God specifically through His Word, the Bible. Right? And so Jerry has, um, has actually memorized Exodus chapter 1 for us. Jerry, you can go ahead and come up. And she's going to be um, reciting Exodus chapter 1 for us. And it's going to be on the screen for everyone to follow along. Um, but we hope that um, what Jerry's going to do here will be inspirational. Because when we not only get into God's Word, but get God's Word into us, it's a life-changing thing. Right? So follow along in Exodus chapter 1 as Jerry recites. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to, uh, to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pythom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. There, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the Hebrew midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. 
Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That's, that's inspirational to me. I hope, I hope it is to you. Well, that's what's going on in Exodus right now. And I want us to look at what I believe is the pivotal verse in all of chapter 1. You may have noticed it. it. kind of sets the stage for the rest of the book and really the rest of history and everything else that follows. It's verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Those are ominous words, man, on the stage of history right there. Um, Israel's sort of journey among the Egyptians had been great until this point, precisely because God had put Joseph in place. But now here is a man who's now reigning in Egypt that does not know Joseph, and they move to a time of from prosperity to true, real persecution. And get this, from their perspective, the Israelites could have justifiably seen Egypt as the promised land. Remember, God had told Abram, I'm going to give you a land the land of Canaan. But now, check it out. The, the Israelites are in Egypt. Everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. Right? Like, I didn't plan on seeing that. but so, uh, Everything is great. Um, that was the number one hit song in Egypt that year. It was awesome. Uh, so everything was, doing, was going really well. It said that they were multiplying and prosperous and so much so that the Egyptians were afraid of them. This had to look like the promised land. I mean, it could have really looked like the promised land from their perspective. But now it had become a place of extreme bondage, uh, torture. You know, God never intended for Egypt to be the promised land. You realize that? God never intended Egypt to be the promised land. You may remember from our Genesis study that Joseph actually promised this on his deathbed. Um, I don't think it's coming up on the screen, but Genesis 50, 24 says, And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Joseph even made uh, the sons of Israel, his, his brothers, promise that they would take his bones once he was dead back to the land of Canaan, the true promised land. And for a time, it had been, it had been great for the Israelites to live among the Pharaohs. And Joseph, as long as Joseph was ruling, Israelites were good. They owned a position of privilege, but everything changed. Um, this is going to be as difficult as anything the Israelites could have ever imagined. Um, again, the new Pharaoh didn't know Joseph. He didn't know Joseph was God's guy. He didn't know Joseph had saved the land. There would be no Egypt without Joseph at this point. So gradually, as our text said, the Egyptians began to fear the Israelites. Uh, and out of fear and greed, they enslaved God's people. But I want you to remember something that our text also says. It says that as they were enslaved, precisely because they were being persecuted, they grew more. They grew more. You know, in the grand sort of cosmic scheme of things... Um, we, we've seen actually up until this point time and time again that Satan would seek to crush and stamp out the people of God. 
Because if he does that, there's no Messiah. Do you guys understand? If there's no Israel, there's no Jesus. If there's no Jesus, none of us can truly know God. Right? So this is, the stakes are incredibly high. And so, but it's important that these stakes are going to be changed and redeemed through extreme suffering. Um, suffering because slaves were considered um, Egyptian pharaoh's property. So this is like state-sponsored slavery. Archaeology tells us that the Hebrews of all ages were beaten severely by their taskmasters. Um, this is very similar to what took place in the Americas and Africa during our own lifetime as a nation. This won't be on the screen, but I read a, a biography, a little bi biographical clip that was found um, from the time period. It's an, it recounts an Egyptian taskmaster traveling down the Nile to check on his slaves. Here's what it says. Now the scribe lands on the shore. He surveys the harvest. Attendants are behind him with staffs, Nubians with clubs. One says, give grain. There is none. He is beaten savagely. He is bound, thrown in the well, submerged head down. His wife is bound in his presence. His children are in fetters. This is real, real persecution. In 2017, there was an archaeologist that discovered an Egyptian burial site thought to possibly be that of Israelite slaves. It was reported in the uh, Times of Israel. And it's described by the lead archaeologist this way. Again, I, I didn't put this on the slide. I apologize. But listen to what she says. As the digging season progressed, an even weirder trend started to become clear to the excavators. Almost all the skeletons were exhumed that were exhumed were children, immature, teenagers, and young adults. And we weren't really finding any infants or older adults. This certainly was unusual and not a little bit creepy. I'm assuming she's saying that because this could have been a mass grave for slaves or perhaps because all the infants and the elderly had already been killed. Uh, she says, uh, Initial analysis concluded that the remains were of youths aged 7 to 25, the bulk of whom are thought to have been under 15 when they died. Additionally, the majority of 15 to 25-year-olds had suffered some kind of traumatic injury, and 16% of the under 15-year-olds were found to have spinal fractures and other injuries usually associated with heavy workloads. Essentially, this is a burial place for adolescents, she says. And so there can be no doubt um, that the kind of brutality that the Israelites faced under the Egyptians were exactly as Jerry recited and as you read, was ruthless in verse 14. They were treated ruthlessly, which literally means they were broken down, right? We see spinal fractures in these people. So with their spirits crushed, their backs in pain, the Israelites couldn't rebel, could they? Hard to rebel from under a boot, is it not? Uh, so this brings us to one of the biggest questions we all face in our lives. Why? Anybody ever ask why? Why suffering? Why so much suffering? Um, this is an important question for the Israelites, of course, but it's also an important question about us. Jesus asked this question, did He not? 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his humanity, Jesus asks this question. It's, um, I've, I've found in my own life that it's suffering that, um, that inserts the question marks into our lives. Everything's great. Everything's good until we suffer. And then we begin to ask why. Uh, well, the first thing to say why about the Israelites, the first thing to say about their suffering is that why? Because the Egyptians enslaved them, right? They, they did. It's, uh, you have to acknowledge, um, man, that the Bible has a real true doctrine called sin. And it is a sin to enslave another human being, right? And that's what the Egyptians did. Uh, to the Israelites. So rather than blaming God uh, for our troubles all the time, we need, to, we need to recognize that, man, sometimes we sin against other people and we hurt them. And sometimes other people sin against us and they hurt us. And it sometimes can go in a cycle. I hurt them, they hurt me. Right? This is the human condition. This is what we do. We sin against one another. And in this case, the Israelites were victim of slavery because the Egyptians enslave them. Let there be no doubt. But as I said, God has an eternal plan. Did I not say that at the beginning? So the fact that the Egyptians sinned by enslaving the Israelites did not mean that their suffering was outside of God's control. God could have prevented His people from ever falling into slavery, could He not? Hello? He could, right, thank you. Yeah, He could. God could have prevented His people from going into slavery. Of course He could have, but that was not His plan. You're like, this doesn't make sense. Hang in there. Um, in a world where freedom is allowed, sin is a natural consequence. Do you understand? Remember we talked about from the book of Genesis, God allowed us freedom. to. He told Adam and Eve, here's a tree, don't eat of it. Gave Adam and Eve the ability to eat of it or not. What did they do? They sinned, right? And so where freedom is allowed, sin is a natural consequence. So in allowing freedom, which is a really good thing, God also allows us to sin. Sin, by definition, is rebellion, rebellion against God. So if God's going to allow us to rebel, which is what a, a good king does, what a good God does, then we have the ability to sin. But God is still sovereign even when we use our sinful choices uh, as free people. He is still sovereign to accomplish His ultimate, perfect, good plan. Right? Like, like our little rebellion, us shaking our fists in the face of God, does not thwart God's plan. Do, you, do we understand? Right? God is God. And it was through God's providence then also that the Israelites went down to Egypt. It was by His providence that His people became slaves there. Well, Why? Okay, okay, so Egypt, Egyptians were sinning and God's in control, but why slavery? Why let His people go into slavery? Well, because the Bible records the actual history, and often in, uh, divine, with divine insight, we have on this side of history the why, why God allowed His people to be enslaved. There are lots of reasons for it. The most obvious was in verse 12 of our passage, if you want to look there in your Bible. It says, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. God had promised that they would be made a great people in Egypt. And the more they were, were oppressed, it says in verse 12, the more they multiplied and spread. In other words, without the oppression, they don't multiply and spread. 
It's important that they multiply and spread, and God knows this. The irony is that this is the exact opposite of what Pharaoh wanted to happen. Right? Pharaoh said, there are too many of them. we got to crush them. And so he crushes them and they grow even more. Surprise to Pharaoh, not a surprise to God. Right? Uh, verse 10, Pharaoh says, pen yearby, right? lest they multiply. In verse 12, God says, ken yearby, the more they shall multiply. Right? This is a, a pun. God is speaking a pun upon Pharaoh. The joke is on Pharaoh. Right? Pharaoh saying, unless they multiply, God says, yeah, well, the more they shall multiply. Uh, by enslaving them, Pharaoh kind of rallied them together. Man, he made them stronger. He made them more numerous. Uh, and even though God allowed Pharaoh to sin, just like God allows you and I to sin, he still sovereignly used even Pharaoh's sin to accomplish his very good purposes for his people. Uh, Charles Spurgeon has some great comments on this. He says, In all probability, if they had been left to themselves, they would have been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race and lost their identity as God's special people. They were content to be in Egypt and they were quite willing to be Egyptianized. To a large degree, they began to adopt the superstitions and idolatries and iniquities of Egypt. And these things clung to them in after years to such a terrible extent that we can easily imagine that their heart must have turned aside very much towards the sins of Egypt. Yet all the while, God was resolving to bring them out of that evil connection. They must be a separate people. They could not be Egyptians, nor yet live permanently like Egyptians, for Jehovah had chosen them for Himself. And He meant to make an abiding difference between, the, between Israel and Egypt. So it may sound, I think Spurgeon's got it, it may sound strange but one of the ways God preserved the difference in His people, making them a separate, a chosen, a holy people, is by allowing them to be enslaved under Pharaoh. Like I said, man, remember the cosmic implications of what's going on. The stakes are incredibly high. If there are no chosen people who remain separate and not defiled by the gods of Egypt, then there's no Messiah to come through those people. There's no Messiah. All the people before the Messiah who looked forward to Him and God accounted it uh, to them as righteousness like Abraham. And all of us who now look back to the Messiah and God accounts our trust and the faith in Jesus as our righteousness because He is righteous and we are not. We are in Christ. Without Jesus, nobody can be reconciled with God. So the stakes here are incredibly high. So to protect those stakes, to protect the Messiah, to protect the salvation for all who will believe, the Lord allows His people to be enslaved by the sinfulness of Pharaoh. But God is sovereign. God is good. God is using it for our good. So by the end of the chapter of Exodus, we find that the Israelites still increasing become more numerous. And again, in Genesis uh, God had promised this. He said, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, this is Genesis 46, for I will make you into a great nation there. Hear that? I will make... Now, God knew they were going to be enslaved. They, they, they didn't know what was going on, but God says, Do not be afraid to go down into Egypt. I will make you a great nation there. And in the New Testament, generations to come, Acts 13, it says, The people... 
The, the God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country. So God, um, and the way that God accomplished His plan was through their suffering. He had to get them into Egypt to make them strong, to make them many, to preserve them from the famine that was coming upon the land. Yet He had to get them out of Egypt because they're not Egyptians. They're Israelites. He had to get them to the promised land. So this is what God is doing. So again, let's, let's hear from Spurgeon. This is a longer quote, but he says it better than I can, so... Listen to this. Whenever there has been a great persecution raised against the Christian church, God has overruled it. Not that He cancels it, but that He oversees it. As He did in the case of Pharaoh's oppression of the Israelites by making the aggrieved community more largely to increase. The early persecutions in Judea promoted the spread of the gospel. Hence, when after, after the death of Stephen, the disciples were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, the result is thus given. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. So too, when Herod stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church and killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, what came of it? Why, Luke tells us in almost the same words that Moses had used, the word of God grew and multiplied. Those terrible and bloody persecutions under the Roman emperor by no means stayed the progress of the gospel, but strangely enough seemed to press forward for the crown of martyrdom. The church probably never increased at a greater ratio than as when her foes were most fierce to assail and most resolute to destroy her. The Reformation never went on so prosperously as when it was most vigorously opposed. You shall find in any individual church that whenever evil men have conspired together and a storm of opposition has burst forth against the saints, the heart of the Lord has been moved with compassion. Be patient then, my brethren. Amidst the persecutions of your trials, you may be called upon to bear and be thankful that they are so often overruled for the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel, and the honor of of Christ. Amen. Now, I want to be clear that God does not always want us to suffer. Right? Like, it's not always part of His plan for us to be in persecution. After all, the events of the Exodus are about an exodus, right? A leaving of persecution. Even in our New Testament time, Jesus was born into the religious tolerance and peace and prosperity brought about by the Roman Empire. Right? Uh, the Reformation that was mentioned by Spurgeon in that quote was a rebellion against persecution, was it not? So it's not always God's will for us to be persecuted. Uh, but the point of all this should be really, really clear. Whether in peace or in persecution, God is God. Right? God is God. And if you're in Christ, you are His people, and He can be trusted no matter what your circumstance looks like. And we should always be reminded of Romans 8, 28. For God works together all things, all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Um, you know, another reason um, God allowed His people to suffer, I think, there in Egypt uh, is because it presses on toward their need for salvation. There's a little book called, Why Does It Have to Hurt? I'd highly recommend by Dan McCartney. 
Why does it have to hurt? He says, God saw the suffering of his people and then delivered them. But why did he allow the suffering to happen in the first place? Could he not rather have simply prevented it? If he had done so, would the Israelites have ever desired to leave Egypt? It was hard enough to get them to leave even when they suffered. And we're going to see later in the book of Exodus that they're out in, the, out in the wilderness and hungry, and they're like, man, it would be so much better if we were just back in Egypt. Why didn't God let us out? Per, you know, or why did God let us out? We were happy there. We were, we were fine there. Egypt was the only home they had ever known. Great luxury there. It's the most prosperous land in all the ancient world. Um, so it took suffering and bondage to make them uncomfortable enough to want and accept God's change for them. Hear me say that again. God doesn't waste a thing. You guys understand? He does not waste a thing. It took them suffering for them to recognize and accept God's change for them in their lives. So it's a suffering that weans us on our comforts, means us off of what, uh, what's in our view that's closer than God. You realize that when something's, um, the closer something is in your view, the bigger it seems. What, what's your focus on? What, is, what do you feel most near your heart right now in life? Maybe that thing seems bigger, to God to, bigger than God to you. What God would want you to do and maybe it's through suffering. He's going to remove that thing sometimes that's awful dear to you, but it's become an idol. And it's going to hurt when He removes it. You're going to be uncomfortable. But He doesn't want you to stay in Egypt. He wants to free you from Egypt. You are not an Egyptian. You're an, you're, spiritually, you're, you're an Israelite. You are a child of God. So this teaches us, again, an important lesson about our own spiritual pilgrimage. Suffering helps us look for the Savior. God has a true land of liberty waiting for us. James spoke about it during the announcement. It's called the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. That's where our freedom lies. That's where life is. And our sufferings help us look for that. Um, you know, God... God is, you may have experienced this in your life, God is gracious to allow us to feel our suffering. God is, uh, the reason is, is because God is gracious to allow us to feel our bondage. You may realize if you're a Christian, you can still sin like you used to. But you can't enjoy it anymore. That's God's grace to you. You're like, man... I I thought this was going to be good. I thought it was going to be easy. No, uh, you can still sin. You're still free. God didn't remove your freedom. He loves you too much to let you enjoy it. You're His now. Right? He wants better for you. And He will set you free. So are you at a point of transition in your life? Are you at a point of suffering? Are you at a point where I feel like, man, I think, I think God has maybe revealed to me that some things are bigger in my life than He is in terms of how I see them. I've maybe seen some things more important than my relationship with God. And you're beginning to feel that press that God is refining you. 
So pause a minute. Ask God to, to show you your own heart. What's your response to that squeeze? What's that response to God showing you that you're, you're in Egypt and you're too comfortable in Egypt? I pray that you're, the desire of your heart is, as you feel that, to long for freedom. Not freedom to stay in Egypt, freedom to be delivered by the hand of God. So turn your soul toward Him and give Him your suffering. Ask Him to walk with you and He is close and He will redeem. He sent the Messiah. He's available today. The Messiah is available today. Will you trust in Him? You might be in Egypt. You might have to stay in Egypt for like 40 years. You might have to stay in the wilderness. We'll talk about that in a future sermon. But God's with us there. He wants to change us there. He wants to meet us there. He wants to give us Himself there. Amen.